Let's turn our attention now to the book of Acts. And as we do, uh, I want you to recognize that it was the best of times and the worst of times. For the last three years, the 12 men who had had their lives turned upside down, who had uh, found themselves following this rabbi named Jesus, who had called them to leave their family and friends, their livelihoods, to follow him, had experienced total in utter life change. Those days were awesome times. They had heard this man teach in a way they had never heard the Torah or the law taught before. Jesus, this Jesus that they were following, seemed to be afraid of no one. He seemed to have all the right answers for every occasion. And he was able to balance grace and truth with utter perfection. He would do amazing things besides just having amazing sermons. He changed water into wine. He healed broken people. He exercised demons. He even raised the dead. And let's not forget the crowds. The crowds loved him. People were coming from all backgrounds and all places within society to hear this man, to see this man, to touch this man. The disciples knew that when they had arrived into Jerusalem, something amazing was going to take place. And on that Palm Sunday, a parade broke out in his honor. These 12 men had come to recognize that they were on the ground floor of a revolution. Everything was going their way. Their parents must have been so proud. Their friends must have told others, I know one of his closest followers. That is, until Judas, the turncoat, betrayed Jesus. Everything seemed to unravel so quickly. Judas hands over Jesus to those religious leaders who had been looking for a way to stop the movement. And it looked like they had landed a knockout punch against this man who seemed untouchable. And, it lo- and, and what happened then was everything fell apart. The disciples all find themselves running in fear, most of them disowning this Jesus that they had come to love, now telling even strangers, I don't know him. While running for personal safety, each of them would begin to hear the heartbreaking news that the worst had happened. This Jesus, this Jesus that had changed them, This Jesus that had impacted the lives of so many, this Jesus that was seemingly able to help everyone else, was unable to help himself. For those religious leaders tried him, convicted him, beaten, beat him, and flogged him. And then they hung him on a cross, a criminal's cross. And in that moment, the disciples recognized what all of Jerusalem must have been thinking. This great movement was over. The run was done. It was time for the twelve to close up shop and head for home. Still in a raw state of denial, experiencing the aftermath of the whiplash surrounding the events of what had happened around them, the disciples found themselves gathered, licking their wounds in an upper room. Some had not given up hope, for there was word that the women had gone to the grave, and that they had seen that the stone had been rolled away. 
even their leaders, Peter and John, had said they had gone and found out that to be true. And when they went into the grave, they saw that there was no body. And a glorious man appeared before them saying, he is not here, but he has risen from the dead. But no sign of him was found. There was still no proof. That is, until that night in the upper room behind locked doors as they were filled with fear and fright where Jesus appeared. Jesus walked with them and talked with them and ate with them. They touched Jesus. They saw his wounds. And for 40 days he would reveal and hammer home one indispensable truth. That while he had been put to death on a cross and buried in a grave, Jesus did what he said he was going to do. He would die for our sins, and then he would conquer the grave and rise from the dead. He would prove all that he said was true. And soon he was going to leave them again, but he was going to give them a gift, a parting gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit that would enable them and empower them to finish the work that he had called them to do. But in that moment, questions would arise. Would they rise to the occasion? How would they do without their leader in their midst? What would happen when the authorities push back against their message? What would happen when the world would see their fervor and excitement about a man who said he had died and come back from the grave? What would this promised helper do in regards to the ministry that they were about to embark upon? To understand and know these answers, we must look to the book of Acts. It is there we find answers to those questions and so much more. It is in the book of Acts that we learn about a group of ragtag followers of Christ who changed the world with the same message that we have today. It is through the book of Acts that it reminds us over and over and over again that while the church did much to impact its society and the world around it, that the mission is still left unfinished. And a church like Village Bible is called to pick up the mantle and to take upon them that mission to reach the Fox Valley area and in fact the uttermost parts of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it is here where we pick up Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, we read the first five verses. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we ask your blessing on our time. We ask that you would teach us from your word this morning. 
Father, I pray that we would not look to this text and say, well, that's how God worked in the past, but we would recognize today that you are at work and your spirit empowers us so that we can do many of the things that are recorded in this text, in this book, for your glory and for your namesake. Lord, we want to see our communities changed as they were in the book of Acts. We want to see many people come to the saving knowledge of your son through our proclamation and through the living out of your word. So empower us, enable us, Lord, to hear what you have to say, apply it, and then put it into action, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever had a story that's so good that you got to tell somebody? Uh, this last uh, week, uh, Amanda and I were at uh, our oldest son Noah's uh, high school soccer game. And Noah's a freshman, and, and he's playing uh, on the soccer team. And Amanda had to take off to pick up some of our boys from one of the youth group events here at church. And she says, I'm going to take off. And, and of course, she's heading out, and she's left. And Noah's put into the game, and would you believe it? Noah scores a goal. I'm so excited, I'm cheering, I'm doing everything, I'm being as obnoxious as I can be. And, and I quickly get on my phone and I'm like, you missed it, Amanda. I'm texting away with my fat little thumbs. You, you missed it. He scored a goal. Oh, you should have seen it. It was so glorious. It's gonna make the morning, but I'm just sitting there pounding, pounding, pounding. And, and I'm thinking, man, I'm lucky. She had to go pick up the kids and I'm there. I get to see it. I got to experience it with my own eyes. Of which she responds, I'm still here. (laughs) And I'm looking around and there she is even closer to the action (laughs) than I was. Of which I responded, quit abandoning our other children and get to work. Have you ever had a story that was so great, so exciting, that you wanted to share it with someone? i got to be honest with you, I'm one of those dads. I was texting anybody. So maybe you got this random text from a number. That was me. Because it's exciting. We're excited about stories and things. Whether we see them on TV or we see our children do them or we experience them at work or at play. An exciting story, a story that changes us, is a story we want to tell the world. Luke has already spent a great amount of time telling the story of Jesus Christ. We call that the Gospel of Luke. And he tells this story, and we we know that the person he's telling this story to is his friend I'd like to call Theo. You see, he had already spent a great amount of time telling his friend Theo all that Jesus had taught and all that Jesus had done. And now in the second installment, he's going to tell, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. He was going to articulate how this movement had gotten to where it was. Now I want you to know when, when, when Luke writes this story, he writes it about 60 AD or around there, about 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Luke is a doctor. Luke is a doctor who became a companion of the Apostle Paul. I want you to know that Luke himself was not a disciple of Jesus's, nor was he an eyewitness to the things he was writing about. So he was not there. He was not able to see with his own eyes 
what he was writing. But he had come to understand the story. He hung around as a close associate to the Apostle Paul. He had hung around people like Peter, James, and John. He had come to know the story so well, and Luke's great claim, if you will, was to be the church's first historian. And he did an amazing job. In fact, critics, both, both Christian, I'm sorry, uh, uh, scholars, both Christian and secular say this. So let me share just a couple quotes with you. Based on his accurate description of towns and cities and islands and people, as well as naming various official titles, archaeologist Sir Walter Ramsey wrote the following, Luke is a historian of the first rank, not merely uh, with regards to his statements being fully fact and trustworthy, but he should be placed along the pantheon with the very greatest of all historians. This archaeologist says, listen, we can follow what Luke is saying. He's done a masterful job in writing what the real story was. Professor of classic literature and archaeology at Auckland University, E.M. Blaylock, wrote this, The Acts of the Apostles is not a shoddy product of pious imagining, but a trustworthy record. It is the spade work of all archaeology which first revealed that truth. So here's Luke, who's got a story that's changed his life. He's seen now for 30 years what Jesus and his ministry has done to the people, not only in Galilee, but now reaching uh, the far fringes of the Roman Empire. And he begins to write the story. He begins to tell the tale. Now, who does he write? He writes to Theophilus, Theo, his friend. Now, we don't know much about Theophilus. In fact, Theophilus is only mentioned twice, both by Luke in Luke chapter 1 and also now in Acts chapter 1. He speaks about uh, Theophilus as an individual that seemingly had a title in the Roman authority. And so many scholars believe that Theophilus is a man that's high up, a high-ranking official in the Roman government of Caesar. It is probably Theophilus who is paying for Luke's work to be done. And so here we have this story that cannot be left alone, written by a guy who now has seen the ramifications of it. Now, why is he writing to Theophilus? Why would Theophilus have such a concern about the story of Jesus and his followers? I want you just for a moment to turn from the book of Acts to turn back to the Gospel of Luke. So if you're in the book of Acts, go through, go back to your left to the book of John and then the book of Luke and go to Luke chapter 1. So two books back. And let's find out why in the world Luke is writing this story. So in Luke chapter 1, he dedicates this book to Theophilus. He says this in Luke chapter 1, in the first four verses, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, 
to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. It would seem that Theophilus was a seeker. If he wasn't a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he was looking into these things. And as a good Christian, Luke says, I'm going to help you with resources that are going to tell you the story about this Jesus and his followers so that you may have more certainty about what you believe. The book of Acts is to help us as believers and those who we come into contact with to have more certainty that what Jesus said and what Jesus did, we can be certain of. We can have confidence in it. And so he writes this incredibly orderly account of what is going to transpire. And so what does he do? He picks picks up where he left off. Get back to the book of Acts now. As he's written through uh, the uh, gospel of Luke, at the end of Luke, what do we have before us? We have Jesus ascending into heaven. And we have the disciples coming back into Jerusalem, excited, praising God. And then the story ends. Well, what was next? What happened in our study guide this week, uh, in our small groups? For those, if we don't have the book of Acts, the next book that we would come to is the book of John, which would tell us more about Jesus' ministry. And then we go right to Romans without Acts. And the question we'd have to ask is, how do we go from Jerusalem to Rome? Acts is the answer to that. And in these 30 years, we need to recognize a couple things about this book, and then we'll get to the outline. So write these somewhere in your outline notes so that you can uh, remember these things to be true. Number one, we need to recognize that the title, uh, my Bible says, is the Acts of the Apostles. And I'm going to tell you, well, that's a decent description. It's not a, a, a slam dunk While we will see the work of the apostles in the book of Acts, we need to recognize this morning that the real title should be the Acts of God. Because God is the superstar. God is the center of this book. And if we put our time and attention or focus on the cool things that the apostles do, we forget that God is the one who is working. We also need to recognize that this is a transitional book. It's a transitional book. It is a book that is in, in flux, if you will, uh, telling us the ebbs and flows of the early church. As I said, it would span about 30 years. It would begin in Jerusalem, but it would finish in Rome. It would have moments of great celebration, the day of Pentecost, which we'll talk about in a couple days or a couple weeks here, uh, is a time of great celebration. But only in a couple chapters, we're going to find out that some of the leading followers of Jesus in that first church were Ananias and Sapphira, who lie, a great lie before God and his people, and God puts them to death. And so there are times of of great excitement, and there are times of great defeats. There are times of great clarity, and there are times of great confusion. And so we need to understand that there's a lot of things going on here, and a lot of people get really excited 
about the study of the book of Acts because they see a lot of ecstatic and, and crazy things happening and they get all excited saying, hey, let's talk about those cool things. You see, in the book of Acts, we're going to see all kinds of miracles. We're going to see people talking in different tongues or languages. We're going to see people teleported from one place to another. That sounds pretty cool, right? And we get excited about these things and we forget that the real purpose is not all of those ecstatic things, but the ongoing reminder that God is changing the world through His Son. And you and I get to be a part of it. You and I get to have a part in that unfinished mission. Now a couple of things you need to know about this transition, which will make interpreting the book of Acts a little tougher. In this transition, we see a couple things happening. Number one, we see a transition for the entire movement of Christianity. Notice this, first transition. We go from the 12 and the 120 who are Jewish people. The church in Acts starts out wholly Jewish. And it moves to being majority Gentile. The second transition that we'll see is the idea that the role of the apostles is central early on. The twelve apostles that will lead the church are first and foremost in that church. And by the middle part of Acts, the apostles' role is diminishing, and the role of local elders in local churches, as we have here at Village Bible Church, takes on a higher place. So we see that transitioning, the diminishing of the role of the apostle, and the elevating of the role of elder in the local church. Number three, We transition a church that's centered in Jerusalem and has all of the comings and goings going around Jerusalem by the end of the book being all over the far-flung places of the Roman Empire. Fourth, we have a book that focuses attention at the beginning on Peter and John and their ministry, but by chapter 9 and and moving beyond that is almost wholly a part of the Apostle Paul's journeys and his taking the gospel to the Gentiles in the known worlds. And so we have this transition. And so when we interpret the book of Acts, we're going to come up to some things and say, wait a minute, why aren't we doing that anymore? Why aren't we, why aren't we having that a part of our service? The book of Acts is an important place that as Christians, and for me as a Bible teacher, you have to do a test. I want you to write this down. It's the descriptive prescriptive test. The descriptive slash prescriptive text. Test, sorry. The book of Acts is going to describe some things. Some things that, again, maybe we don't see going on in the church today. We're going to run into one next week. Judas uh, is going to uh, end his life because of the guilt that he experiences in betraying Jesus. And because of some of the things that Jesus had taught about uh, the 12 apostles sitting on thrones and ruling and, and judging the nations, Peter and, and others say, we've got to replace him. And they pick a man named Matthias, who's going to replace Judas as the 12th apostle. They're not going to do it uh, uh, through a vote. They're not going to do it through uh, some sort of ballot. What are they going to do? They're going to roll the dice. They're going to cast lots. And so some will say, why don't we do that? We've got some elders that are going to be elected here at the church. Let's just grab some dice and roll the dice and see if they're going to be elders or not. 
You see, that's a practice that we see once in the New Testament that we put in the line and say that's a descriptive thing. They did it once. God allowed them to do it once. He worked through that once. But it's probably not something that we want to prescribe to Village Bible Church or any New Testament church moving on. But there's some other things, things like speaking in tongues, things about uh, performing miracles and healings. Why are we not as pastors spending less time on the preaching and bringing people forward, the infirmed, the, the, uh, the broken, and bringing them forward, the demon-possessed? And why are we not like Peter and James did and John did in the early parts of Acts and, and have a healing ministry? Why aren't we doing what we see on TV? Because we would say likewise, while God still heals, the role of the healer was for a moment in time, and they're describing those moments in the book of Acts, but those things had their moment and we've now moved on, and that God may still use that in special circumstances, but probably not the prescription for the church to follow. So what are the prescriptive things? Prayer, uh, fellowship of the saints, Communion, the preaching of God's word, evangelism, being bold about our faith. These are the things that we see over and over and over again. These are the things that are reinforced in the apostles' writings later after the book of Acts that we see hammered away over and over again. And so to those things that we can find uh, examples not only in the book of Acts but other parts of scripture, we will say maybe there's a prescription here. Maybe this is how we are to do it, because later on in Acts chapter 6, so let's use the descriptive of the rolling of dice and casting lots in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 6 and in Acts chapter 15, no dice are used. Prayer and the seeking of the Spirit's leading through the collective body of believers is the prescribed choice of action when the church has to make a decision. So, we're not rolling dice to pick our new elders, are we? But what we're doing is we're bringing it before the entire body, Acts 6, Acts 15, by the leadership of the leaders, to say, do we believe that this is the Lord's plan, the Lord's will, that we bring on these leaders, these elders, into our church? And we will either hear a resounding yes, or a resounding no from the people who are led by the Spirit because that is the prescribed way of making a decision within the church. We're going to go over this again numerous times as we approach things that seem a bit odd and maybe we say, why do we see something in Scripture and we don't do? It will be the descriptive slash prescriptive test. Finally, what we need to recognize is we come before this text And the direction that we are going in to understand this book, we jump now into the opening verses. And so we get to now the outline. Thank you for your patience in it. And what I think, what Luke is starting to tell Theophilus, is something very simple that I think is so important. And it was a direction I never would have seen myself going when I was writing this sermon. But I believe what Theophilus is being told by Luke is what a Christian is. Not the church. We'll get to the church in a moment. But he, in the first five verses, says, hey, do you want to know what a Christ follower is like? Do you want to know what a Christian looks like? Then look to the example of these 12, and you get a picture of what the church was going to have filling its spots. Christians. People that had their lives changed 
by the life, teaching, and ministry of Jesus Christ. I see three characteristics today that I think we need to evaluate in our own life and say, are we just saying we're a Christian and we're not? Now remember, in Acts chapter 1, we're going to be reminded that you can talk a good game. You can hang around Jesus for a long time. You can even do ministry in the name of Jesus and still not be a part of the Christian life. Still not be a part of it. That example is Judas. He hung around Jesus. He did ministry in the name of Jesus. He had productive opportunities. When Jesus would send out the 12, it wasn't like, and the 11 came back and had seen great things happen, and Judas saw nothing. He saw some of the great things. He experienced the ministry that came, and yet he was far from God. And some of us this morning will talk a good game of what it means to be a Christian and we forget that it's easy to talk it, it's easy to uh, fake it, that we have to evaluate and see whether or not we pass the test. So this is what Luke starts with. He says that a Christian, now notice, a Christian is a person, uh, in your outlines you have this little paragraph which I think is important, that a Christian or the definition of a Christian is one who is no different from the first century as they were in the 21st century. So it's not like our definitions have changed. And the first thing that we see is that you've got to be convinced As a Christian, you have to be convinced. Luke begins by saying the reason the disciples took upon this message was to spread the gospel that they were sure was true. They saw Jesus put to death, and they now had seen Jesus alive. How could they be sure? Notice in the text that Jesus presented himself, verse 3, alive to them after his suffering by many, some translations say, convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. They had seen all that had transpired around the days and events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And what were some of the proofs that they saw? After his death and burial and, res- uh, death and, burial and resurrection, they see him and they're eating with him and they're drinking with him. They meet Jesus in Galilee according to Jesus' own words. I'm going to meet you in Galilee, and that happens. They allow him to touch his body and to be handled by them. He instructs them about the nature of his kingdom and what's going to transpire in the future. He appears to more than 500 people at one point. This isn't just something that a few people saw, but more people that are even sitting in this room right now saw the risen Jesus on a particular occasion. And then the continuing public manifestations of himself for 40 days. You see, here's the thing. The disciples were changed. They had been changed by what they had seen and heard concerning Jesus. And that change, that, uh, if you will, conviction that they had, that convincing that had taken place, had massive implications on how they would live life from that day on. But what about those who hadn't seen it? What about those who weren't there? Better yet, what about us? What about us who have never seen Jesus? We didn't see Jesus before he died. We didn't see Jesus on the cross. Nor did we see Jesus after he was resurrected from the grave. What about us? Well, Acts helps us because neither Luke nor Theophilus were there. 
But they're a record for us about how we can be confident, we can be convinced about the claims of Christ. But how so? We need to be convinced about two things when it comes to Jesus. His words and his works. His words and his works. Write those down. First of all, he says that he writes all of this, Luke does, and he writes and has dealt with all that Jesus began to do, his works, and teach his words. And my question for you this morning is, how convinced are you of those two things? How convinced are you that what Jesus has recorded in Holy Scriptures is the truth? How convinced are you that his way of living life is the right way? Is the uh, only way that we will experience the true abundance in life? How many of us are convinced of that? Secondly... How many of us are convinced that when it says that Jesus healed people, that he did? That Jesus exercised demons, that he actually did that? That Jesus actually raised people from the dead? Do we believe that? A lot of people will say, well, those are just stories and they're parables or teachings about uh, some uh, emotional thing or some societal ill. And, And they're not real miracles, but they're something else. Do we believe that when Jesus says he did these things, that he did them? That he experienced death, but by the power of God was raised from life and now has ascended to heaven and resides at the right hand of the Father. How convinced are you of these things? The book of Acts is to grow our conviction about what Jesus has done and about what Jesus has said. Now, please understand, the rise and fall of your walk with Jesus Christ, your ability to fight off temptation, your ability to make godly and wise decisions will rise and fall on your convincing of these things to be true. If you are kind of wishy-washy on the claims of Jesus, on the words of Jesus, then you will live in a take-it-or-leave-it approach. I like some of these things, but when I get over here, Jesus starts saying things, you know what, I'm not sure I buy it. And some of us have a confidence issue. We're not convinced. Right now, the Chicago Tribune has an ongoing meter. I see it every once in a while in my news feed on Facebook. And they will ask the question of Chicago Cub fans, how confident are you, Ralph, that the Cubs are going to repeat as world champions? Well, I'll assure you of one thing. We're more confident than White Sox fans are, right? Okay? But how confident are you? And it's been really, really kind of funny to watch the ebb and flow of the confidence of Cubs Nation. When the Cubs start losing like they're doing right now, confidence begins to drop. Because they're like, wait a minute, right when I think they're doing well, they let me down. And so I'm not sure they're going to repeat. And so if I'm not sure they're going to repeat, I'm not going to be all that bold and all that uh, loud about my confidence in my team to accomplish the task before them. You see, our confidence will determine what we say about our sports team, but might I add, it will also determine what we say about our Savior. 
And so some of you right now are really quiet about your faith. And you're quiet about your faith because deep down inside, you're not altogether confident in the things of the Lord. You're not confident that that Jesus could, in fact, change your workplace. You're not altogether confident that Jesus could uh, use you in powerful ways. Because you're just not sure if all that Jesus said and all that Jesus did was really the real deal. The disciples show us. They show us going from being totally unconvinced and unconfident about the claims of Jesus. They run. They tell others, I don't know him. I don't know this guy. I don't know who he is. They're trying to save themselves because they know, man, that Jesus boat is not somewhere I can put my hope and trust. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give that up. And they go from being totally unconfident to standing before religious leaders and saying, listen, you can kill us, you can imprison us, you can beat us down, but we will preach and proclaim the name of Jesus. What changed? Their education hadn't. Their eloquence hadn't. What changed was their confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as Christians, we need to become more and more confident. So how do we do that? How do we become more confident? We go to studies like the book of Acts and we are reminded and we are brought face uh, first into the example of godly believers taking big steps of faith for Jesus and finding out those big steps of faith that he will carry us through them. Number two, we need to be a convinced people. Notice number two, we need to be a commissioned people. We're people who are commissioned. Notice that Luke says in the text that he had given commands, verse 2, through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, the sent out ones, the called out ones, whom he had chosen. Jesus had chosen his twelve, and he had said, listen, I am going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to take you, and I'm going to teach you, and I'm going to have you uh, learn from me so that you can imitate me in the days to come, and I'm doing so so that you won't be the smartest guys in the room. I'm not doing it so you'll be the most popular guys in the room. I'm doing this teaching, I'm doing this training, so that you can go out, and he says in verse 8, the very same thing that he had said at the end of Luke and at the end of Matthew, that you're going to go out into all the world and make disciples of all nations. In verse 8, he says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. I'm sending you out to do a work. And he is expecting that that's going to happen. Yesterday, we at uh, my catering company, 5Bs, we had four different events going on. And I know you think I'm pretty special, but I can't be in four places at once. And so I went on one event, and I commissioned my employees to go do uh, the other events. Now, here is what I'm expecting of them. I'm expecting them to do those events as if I was there doing them myself. Because nothing else will work. I don't want them to try to uh, cater, if you will, with their own thinking and their own uh, game plan as if it's their own business. No, I have taught them. I have trained them. I have given them core convictions about how I want the catering business to be run. And so I give them core competencies so that they will go out and cater as if I'm there 
co-catering with them. Listen, that's what Jesus is commissioning his apostles to do. I want you to go tell the world about me as if I'm there right with you. As if I'm there doing the work with you. And here's the great truth. He's going to give them the Holy Spirit. And so he is right there. He is able uh, to be with them at all points and all times. So notice, what does this involve? They're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They're going to be commissioned with this. And it begins first with the question of godly obedience. Godly obedience. Luke says the first job of a Christian, listen, we miss this, isn't to change the world, but to wait on God. It isn't to change the world. Some of us, uh, we become Christians and we think the first thing we need to do is we need to go tell the world about it. And, and really what Jesus tells the disciples is something very, very different. Notice in the text, twice we see that he gave commands, that's an important word there, had given commands in verse 2, and then he said in verse 4, while staying with them, he ordered them. Wait a minute. I thought Jesus was my friend. And friends don't command me to do things. Friends don't order me to do things. And Jesus says to his disciples, I've got a job for you to do, and you're going to do it my way, or you're not going to do it at all. And what does he tell them? I want you to wait. Wait. He says, do not depart, verse 4, from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. The Holy Spirit's coming. And I don't want you to go and do a single thing until you have heard from me. As a follower of Jesus Christ, our number one job is to follow the orders of our commanding officer. He commands and he orders it. And some of us think, you know, Jesus is, is a guy who's just all about suggestions. He's not. It's his way or the highway. We've just seen and we'll experience next week what happens when a disciple of Jesus' goes their own way, goes rogue, doesn't follow the commands and orders of Scripture. We're going to see it didn't turn out well for Judas. And so we are reminded that as a Christian, God has called us to a ministry, and that ministry begins first with godly obedience. Number two, this commission allows for a great opportunity. A great opportunity. These disciples are going to be given the opportunity of a lifetime. Number one. What's the number one opportunity they're given? They are given a sneak peek into what God is going to do. Notice in the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, it says in verse 3 that he's going to convince them with many different proofs uh, of him being alive after his suffering, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so what is transpiring here is that Jesus is saying, hey, disciples, come here. I want to tell you what's going to happen in the days to come. I want to make you aware. I want to pull back the curtain about what's going to take place and so that you won't be surprised, you don't have to be anxious, and you can be full steam ahead. There's something great about that. I remember years ago we had a 
We had a man from our church. We had a couple people from our church that were um, uh, employed by uh, Big Idea um, Productions. They were the ones that created Veggie Tales, the kids' cartoons, and all of that. And we had a, a man here named Nathan who was working uh, with them. And Keith and I went to, to their uh, headquarters uh, in the suburbs to have lunch with him, and he was showing us around. And I remember we were walking by a room and, and, it, and it had a kind of keep out sign. It didn't say keep out, but something that kind of said, you know, what's going on there is important. And of course, Keith doesn't ask, but I do. What's going on in there? What do we got to do to get in there? And he says, I don't think you can go in there. And I said, hey, I'm your pastor. I can keep secrets. Tell me what's going on in there. And at that point, another guy came. He says, well, that's my supervisor. He's the guy that's going to either let you in or not. And I put on the charm. Okay? And I said, hey, what's going on in there? Help me out. Tell me what's the big secret. And he says, all right. He says, I'll let you go in. And he opens the door. And a year before... It had come out. I got to see the opening scenes of Jonah, the VeggieTales movie. And I remember thinking, I'm pretty cool. And I remember my wife came home, or I came home, and she says, what? I didn't do anything, honey. (laughs) Nothing. Just went out with Keith and went out with Nathan, and we talked about things. And, And I felt this great excitement that when the movie came out, I could say, hey, I knew about that before anybody else did. Now you say, why in the world would I bring that up? Because what Jesus did with the disciples is he unveiled the curtain so they could see a sneak preview of what was to come. And Jesus has done that with us. You see, Jesus has given us not just the book of Acts, but all of these books in the New Testament. And what does he say? Hey, these things are going to happen in the future. Take heart, be encouraged, don't lose hope. And so when we see hurricanes, when we see uh, terrible things happen, we go to the scriptures and say, well, Jesus taught us about these things. Jesus told us these things were going to happen. And they're only seemingly going to get worse until the end of days comes and then Jesus is going to come. And so I've got a sneak preview of what's taking place. Jesus taught his disciples about the kingdom of God, and he has taught us about that as well, so that we can seek it with all our hearts. Number two, the reason why this is a great opportunity, is because Jesus says, I'm going to give you a job, and you're going to be able to accomplish it. You're going to be able to accomplish it. I hate projects. I hate them. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was putting together uh, bathtub doors. We had a curtain in our boys' bathroom. And uh, as they've gotten older and all that, more water gets displaced. And we, we're not for waterfalls in our kitchen, okay? So we're going to put these shower doors in. And uh, I boldly tell Amanda, you go buy it, I will build it. All right? And then I get the instructions. And they say they're in English. But they're not. And I have zero confidence that I'm going to be able to complete it. So I call one of my employees and I say, hey, your boss is up a creek here. you got to come help me. And then one of my neighbors, a person in this church comes by, and he brings me tools because I don't have anything to accomplish this task before me. And he goes, you really got this thing under control? I don't. I think I got it upside down. And there's zero confidence that this thing is going to be finished. It's going to turn out the way it was supposed to. That is not true of the Christian mission. 
God has given us His Holy Spirit, and He says, listen, it's already a done deal. You win. Evil loses. You are going to change the world with my gospel. I'm with you, and I can see the end from the beginning. It's already as good as done. Amen? And so what he's saying is, because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, that promise, we can rest assured that whatever God puts before us, we're going to be able to accomplish. And so you say, well, I don't know if God can change my workplace. I don't know if God can change my spouse. I don't know if God will change my neighbor. The book of Acts says, yes, I can. And I will. Through your obedience and faithfulness. He will allow us to accomplish whatever he calls us to do. That then leads us to one final characteristic, and that is we're to be contagious. We're to be contagious. You see, the more confident you become, and the more you understand your calling that God has given you, the more infectious you become. Years ago, when I was a child, back in the olden days, we suffered from the great malady, the pox. The pox. I tell my boys that. Yes, your mom and I experienced the pox. Small pox? No, chicken pox. Okay? Chicken pox. And, and if you remember back in the day when parents didn't care about their kids' well-being, <laughs> your, your parents would learn that someone had chicken pox, and what would they do? They would have you go play with them. Hey, drink from the same cup. Eat from the same... Oh, it's all good. We're a part of one big family. We can't eat in the same area code these days. But back in the day, the kids got spots all over them. Yeah, give them a kiss. It's all good. And we would get the chicken pox. And the chicken pox were this great contagious thing that would ruin a couple weeks of your life. And how would you get chicken pox? You would get it by interacting with those who had it. You would interact with those who had it. Listen, today we made this decision to call this day Pack the Place Sunday. And some will say, listen, this is just a gimmick. Just a gimmick to make Pastor Tim feel good. Well, if you think that, that's fine. But I'm going to tell you it's more biblical than that. Because the reason why church attendance is so important is we become contagious when we interact with one another. The more and closer we get with one another as we're worshiping and praising God, we catch the fever. And we catch the fever and I pray that we get out of this place and we're a little more contagious than when we came in. And so we have these, if you will, Christian pox parties where we gather all together and we get more and more contagious and then we're sent out with the fever and the fervor to share it with the world. But what does that mean? It means we've got to grow in some things. We've got to grow in our community with one another. So it begins by growing. Growing in our community with others and growing in our community with God. And so in the book of Acts, you're going to see, and they prayed, and they spent time together, and they worshiped together, and they fellowshiped together, and they shared everything in common, and, and they gave together, and they, they uh, taught together, and all of these one another things they did together, and who were they doing it for? God. And so God's transmitting this fever to them, and they're sharing this fever with one another, and when they leave, they go out into the world, and they tell the world about it, and they bring more people in so more people can become content. 
contagious. And that's the book of Acts. And listen, here's the amazing thing through the power of the Holy Spirit. That fever that they experienced in the first century is the same fever we're experiencing 2,000 years later. God's finishing the work. But what that means is we have to grow and we have to go. It involves going. He's going to call us to be his witnesses. He's going to call us to go to our world, to be our witness, to be his witnesses where? Notice what he says, everywhere. To be his witnesses in our communities, to be his witnesses in our schools, to be his witnesses in our neighborhoods, to be his witnesses uh, in our families, to be his witnesses in our workplaces, to be his witnesses in the grocery store, to be his witnesses in the department store, to be his witnesses with people we know, to be his witnesses to people we don't know, to be witnesses when we're working, to be witnesses when we're playing, to be witnesses when we're at home or on vacation. God has called us to be his witnesses so that his word and his gospel will go forth to the uttermost parts of the world. So here's the thing as I close. Our series is entitled Unfinished. And I want to make it abundantly clear. The unfinished work isn't Jesus's. Remember, Jesus was on the cross and what did he announce? It is, help me out, finished. It's done. I've completed the work, he said, John 17, 4. I've completed the work, Father, you've given me to complete. His work is done. Now he's commissioned us to pick it up. And I will tell you that as long as there are people who don't know Jesus, that work is yet complete. And so we've got some work to do, village. And we need to become more confident and convinced about who Jesus is we got to believe that Jesus has called us into this mission and we need to become contagious by living with God and being close to one another so we can change the world. And here's the thing. We have an example of what happens when you do. The world was started on fire with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can that not happen in the Fox Valley area because we get excited about our faith? The work is left undone. Will we pick up the mantle? and take it upon ourselves with the power of the Holy Spirit to complete the task so Jesus can come and take us home.